I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you have read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. Just as you partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you are ours also in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended to first come to you that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on our journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no, at this, all at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as may be the promises of God in him, there are yes, wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed is of God, is God, who has seated us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for your faith, for you are standing firm. But I determined this, that for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Heavenly Father, as I read through the writings you gave to Paul, you also allow us to see his emotions. And I read this and I know this was so hard for him to do and write. And I thank you that you give us things like this to help us see things that we would, you know, just pass on by and not understand. I pray that you'll help Tom as he shares from your word things to us in this amazing passage and help us to see you better and know your heart better so that we can be uh, glorifying you like Paul and, and others have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. This passage has caused many a preacher to scratch his head. In the, and I have to say that after uh, looking at about six or eight commentaries and listening to about four or five sermons and spending a whole lot of time in the text, I've still had to scratch mine a few times. <laughs> but there is a very powerful and actually very straightforward message in this passage that we must not miss. The passage is about, fundamentally, about Paul's great confidence and the one who made him 
eternally useful. And the, the marvelous message of the passage for you and me is that God intends us to have the very same confidence in Him that Paul had. That He intends for us to know that we are made useful because His yes is always yes. I want to show you a couple of things this morning. Uh, we'll see if the technology all comes together here, but this don't try to write all this down, please. It'll drive you crazy and it won't be up there long enough. But I, what I want you to see about this timeline is that there are, there are three visits involved and there are four letters involved. Now, only two of those letters are in the canon of Scripture. Those are the two letters, First and Second Corinthians, that God ordained to include in His written Word. But Paul wrote other letters to the Corinthians, and we'll, we'll talk about those in context as we go. Uh, and, and then there were three visits. And that second visit is the one that Paul spends a good bit of time talking about here. Uh, it's technically not addressed in the book of Acts where you might expect to see it, but it is spoken of in this passage. When you see Paul use the word we in this passage, he's talking about himself and Timothy and Silvanus. And if you, if you, look, if you see the name Silas, well, Silas is like a nickname or a shortened version of Silvanus. Same guy, okay? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 10 to 15, Paul talks about the opposition. He talks about what was going on in Corinth that was opposing his ministry. And he, he says, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. That's what we consider Greece. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows that I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do. And then listen, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. There were men who had come in among the saints in the community of, of Christians in Corinth who were not Christians. They were, they were of the devil and they were doing their very best to mislead and to draw away Corinthian saints. A very similar thing happened in Galatia if you read what, what goes on with the Judaizers in Galatia, Galatians 1 and 2. Now at first glance in, in our passage, Paul talks about boasting in, in verse 12. He talks about his proud confidence, and the word there is boast. That may seem out of character for Paul, right? Um, he says our, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. Now, the reason that seems out of character is because for Paul to talk about boasting, let me black that out for a second, 
reason it seems out of character is that over and over in his letters, he says, if anyone boasts, his only boast must be in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. Uh, even later in this chap, in this very letter, 2 Corinthians 10, 17 and 18, Paul says, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Keep that in mind, that, that very declaration. More than once in his letters, Paul boldly asserts and defends the godly and loving motives that compelled his and his co-workers' dealings with the saints. Here, he declares that the basis for his assertion of those godly motives is, quote, the testimony of our conscience, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have con conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Now, this isn't the only time that Paul makes such a boast. It's not the only time that Paul declares that he has been conducting himself in good conscience. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Romans 9, he gives us an important clarification regarding what he means when he speaks of the testimony of his conscience. Listen to this. I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my Jewish brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, it is not conscience in a vacuum that rightly gives us confidence that we are acting in keeping with God's will. And it was not conscience in a vacuum that gave Paul that confidence. It is our conscience in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. For us who have received the revelation of God in the written word, it is the Spirit's work through that word that is our sure affirmation that we are speaking and acting in keeping with the will of God and the character of God. We have, the, we have the testimony of the Spirit through the Word that the things that we are saying and the things that we are doing are in line with God's will, God's character, and God's agenda. Are you with me? Okay. There's no vacuum there. There's a whole lot of context that God has given us for assessing these things. Paul's confidence in his own motives should not surprise us. This is the same man whom the resurrected Jesus identified in Acts 9.15 as, quote, a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. God knows and equips his instruments to act on his behalf. When Paul said in Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, he was declaring a promise of God that he had seen to be continually active in his own life and in his own ministry. 
Paul had known the abiding presence and power of the Holy Spirit ever since that moment on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus when God struck him blind in order to make him see. Paul certainly was not making a claim here of sinless perfection. In passages like Romans 7 and Philippians 3, Paul makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in his heart was still in progress, just as is true of you and me right now. Years after writing this letter, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15 and declared himself, Paul, to be the chiefest of sinners, present tense. Paul is not asserting sinless perfection here. He is expressing his absolute confidence, not in himself, but in the promises of God. Verse 12 sorts this out, and the, and the verses that follow that expand on, on what that verse asserts. Paul says it was not in fleshly wisdom that he had changed his plans about coming to Corinth, which is what's at issue here. He says it was not in fleshly wisdom, it was what? It was in the grace of, of God. It was in the grace of God. Now, how could Paul know that his decision to delay his visit to Corinth was in the will of God and according to the grace of God? Well, how, how could he know that his decision was not, in fact, made in fleshly wisdom? Well, the same way that you and I can know whether our decisions are in the will of God rather than contrived from within ourselves. According to uh, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, listen to this. It's a very familiar promise, but listen, listen carefully to it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What will be given to him? Wisdom from above. He says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. According to those verses, was Paul overreaching to believe that God had granted him the wisdom that he had sought prayerfully and in tears? The wisdom that had driven his decisions affecting the Corinthian saints whom he dearly loved? No, he was not overreaching. Paul and Timothy and Silas had labored in prayer with many tears for these saints. Paul talks about that in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul knew the depth of their continual and utter dependence on God, both for the wisdom and the power to be useful to him in the founding and in the nurture of his church throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the Gentile communities in the Roman Empire. Paul knew that if the success of his ministry depended on his own resources or on his own innate character or on his own power to do this impossible job he had been given, his ministry would have been a catastrophic failure. He was very well aware of that. But he also knew 
that what he wrote in Galatians 2.20 was absolutely true. He said, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith, by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. That's how Paul knew that he was useful. Paul's confidence in the legitimacy, integrity, and usefulness of his labors on Christ's behalf was grounded not in anything that came from himself, but in the grace and faithfulness and promises of God. We must not miss this, beloved. Many Christians spend their lives grossly underestimating what God intends to do through them and how it gets done. Paul's unwavering confidence in God's direction and enablement of his ministry is going to be a recurring theme throughout this epistle. i got to tell you guys, 2 Corinthians is the, is the letter in the New Testament that God has used most constantly and mightily in my life to convince me that this jar of clay can be used of God. And I pray the same will be true for you with all my heart. This is indispensable to everything that Paul is going to say about his own life and ministry in this very personal and very transparent letter written to saints whom he loved as his own spiritual children. And it's absolutely central to what you and I must count as true in our own lives and ministries every day. God intends for us to know that His grace is a constant and reliable reality in our lives and in our ministry on His behalf. He intends for us to know with very great confidence that our prayerful, intentional dependence on Him for both the wisdom and the power to live and serve on Christ's behalf does not disappoint. That dependence does not disappoint. Because His Spirit is ever at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's why He left us here. He could have saved us and taken us home. He left us here to be useful. And He's, he's the one who makes that happen. Verse 13 includes yet another must-not-miss point. Paul says to the Corinthian saints, for we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul said, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Later he says the word of the cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God for all who are being saved. Paul's letters, like all the rest of God's written word, are not intended to conceal the truth of God, but to reveal the truth of God to those whom God has chosen. They are intended to be clear and understandable to the people of God. Paul's detractors in Corinth who were finding evil intent behind Paul's words and actions rather than, <laughs> 
than in those words. In other words, they were looking, they were reading between the lines, they were looking behind things that Paul said, and instead of looking at the plain sense of what Paul says, Paul says here, he says, just read what I wrote. Pay attention to what I said. He, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 4, first five verses of 1 Corinthians 4, he said, the ability to look inside another man's heart and know his motives, that's not given to you. It's not given to me, it's not given to you. So don't go there. That would change a lot of our conversations. It would change a lot of our conclusions about other people. As we saw uh, in, the, in those verses, no man has that, that supernatural insight into another man's heart. Now, in verses 15 and 16 here, Paul reminds the Corinthian believers of his original travel plans. Plans that had been necessarily changed. He begins verse 15 with the words, and in this confidence I intended the, at first to come to you. And he's talking about the same confidence that he was acting in good conscience as corroborated by the Spirit. Uh, confidence in, in the testimony of his own Spirit-informed conscience that every facet of his ministry had been carried out in holiness and sincerity in utter dependence on the grace of God working in him and through him and his co-workers. He explains in verses 15 and 16 that he had originally planned to visit the saints in Corinth twice. And I'm going to try to bring up a map here. And uh, I don't know if you probably can't see all these cities, but here's Corinth. And then over here is Ephesus. This is where Paul was when he wrote 1 Corinthians. I'm going to go to a little bit of a blow-up of that. Paul had originally, according to his own, his own purposes, he had, during his first missionary journey, he had, he had been through Macedonia and planted churches there, places like Philippi, Thessalonica. He had come down here to Achaia, Greece, and he had planted, he and his co-workers had planted the, the church in Corinth. When he wrote the first letter to Corinth, he was over here in Ephesus. Now he says that he planned to come back to Corinth on his way to Macedonia and then come back to Corinth again. A double tap, a double visit to Corinth. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen. He was going to give them, he wanted them to twi twice receive a blessing through him, through those visits. At the end of verse 16, he says he hoped to be helped by the Corinthians on his way to Judea. And what that's about, I'm going to go back one map, and we'll, we're going to see later in this book, bear with me through this detail, but we're going to see later in this letter that one of the things Paul was doing in all of these churches on his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey was he was gathering donations to bring way back over here to Jerusalem to the heavily persecuted, poverty-stricken saints in Jerusalem. And so when he says he had hoped to be helped on his way by the Corinthians, he means he was expecting to, to come and gather donations from them that would be taken to Jerusalem. It wasn't for his benefit, it was for the benefit of the Jerusalem church. But this original plan for this double visit to Corinth had changed. 
after sending Timothy to Corinth, Paul had apparently gotten word back from Timothy of opposition to his ministry from these false apostles who had come in amidst the believers in Corinth. So Paul had himself come again briefly. He had come briefly from Ephesus to Corinth after he heard from Timothy. And that visit was brief because it was very, very sorrowful. It did not go well. Apparently, there were a lot of people buying into the, the accusations against Paul. And so he, he went back uh, to, to Ephesus, and it says, uh, and then, by the way, I'm sorry, I got this a little, a little stumbly here, but he sent a third letter to them after the letter of 1 Corinthians, after the report from Timothy after this brief and painful visit to Corinth, he sent a third letter to them that is also not in the canon of Scripture. And this is the letter that the, many commentators call the severe letter, the severe letter, because it was a stern rebuke by Paul to these saints. He was calling them, he was calling them to repent of, of listening and paying attention to these, these false apostles. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but so that you might know the love which I have especially for you. That's referring to that severe letter. He mentions that third letter again in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, when he says, Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. In other words, it ended up having a very favorable effect. Uh, God did not preserve that painful letter to us, but again, it, it was, uh, I'm sure it was pretty hard to read. Paul's about to explain his, his plan, his, the reason for changing his plans about this double visit. But first, before he explains his, his reason, he's going to address one specific malicious accusation that obviously he had heard from the Corinthians. He begins verse 17 by restating at least one of the, the accusations that was being leveled against him by some in the church of Corinth. He does so in the form of two questions. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, to do this double visit, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh so that in me, with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Because he had not come according to the originally announced schedule, Paul's detractors were accusing him of being untrustworthy. A man whose word could not be counted on because his intentions were fleshly. They were self-serving rather than submitted to Christ. Paul's double use of the words yes and no here, yes, yes, no, no, should get our attention. In Matthew 5, 33-37, Jesus said, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you, not, you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything else, anything beyond this is of evil. The double yes and double no that Jesus uses there are typical Hebrew constructs to denote strong emphasis. They would be used, for instance, when someone wanted to affirm or deny something with great resolve. Jesus was saying, when you want to declare your commitment to do something or not to do something, an oath by some object that God created is worthless. You'll notice, by the way, there in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 23, the Jews weren't swearing by God, they were swearing by stuff God made. He says, an oath should not be necessary. Instead, a resolute yes or no is all that should be required. <laughs> and to use more contemporary language, your word should be as good as your bond. 25 times in John's Gospel, Jesus used the words, truly, truly, I say to you. 25 times. And what typically followed those words were some of the most worldview-defining promises in the Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is crossed over out of death into life. Many like those. Here, Paul defends the integrity of his word by arguing from the greater to the lesser, or rather from the greatest to the lesser, from Christ to himself. In effect, he's hitching the reliability of his own word to the reliability of Jesus' word. He says in verses 18 to 20, as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him, in him. For as many as are the promises of God in Him, they are yes. In other words, every promise God ever made, He keeps. Therefore, also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. <laughs> How can Paul tie the reliability of his own words to the reliability of God's words? How is that not overstepping? Well, the phrase, what I purpose, in verse 17 is, I believe, very important here. He says, therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended this double visit, or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that in me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul's saying there was great intentionality in his decision to delay this visit, just as there was originally in his, ten, in his intention to make the visit. When Paul made plans to go to an unreached place in the Roman Empire to spread the gospel and plant churches, and when he made plans to return to nurture those churches, he never did so on a whim or on an impulse. 
he never did so without great deliberation and prayer before God. Anyone who accused Paul of making such important decisions without applying that kind of spiritual diligence just didn't know Paul. Paul ties the reliability of his ministry commitments to the reliability of Christ's own promises because it was Christ who, in fact, was accomplishing the work of ministry that Paul was involved in. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. The word that he preached among them was God's word, not their word. And God who had appointed them to this work is absolutely reliable. In verse 20, Paul says again, as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore also, through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. <laughs> now, if you and I have the same God concept that Paul had, these statements actually make very good sense. If we don't, then they don't. The only identity that Paul recognized for himself, again, I point to Galatians 2.20, the only identity that Paul recognized for himself is the one created when God put him in union with Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as Paul without, without Christ. That's how he came to be so confident of God's superintending of all that he did when he did it in humble, prayerful dependence on God and simple faith in Christ. Bear with me, and I hope this will make good sense to you. Here in verses 21 and 22, Paul says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. That goes back to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. If you don't know those two verses, go look at them. Now you see what Paul did there in verse, here in verses 21 and 22? He's including the Corinthian saints in this confidence. He's saying the God who establishes us in Christ, who anointed us for this work, the God who sealed us and gave us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us as the down payment of our eternal inheritance has done the same thing for you. He has established and anointed and sealed and secured you. Amen. The one who who had chosen and anointed Paul and his co-workers for this ministry is the same God who promises every single child of his that when he says yes, he means yes. Now this is a blessed two-edged sword. It assures us that when, when we, you and I, when we humbly and prayerfully and intentionally resolve to speak and act on Christ's behalf, in this world, the Holy Spirit who indwells us inhabits and empowers that which we say and do. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't worry about what you're going to say when they arrest you. The Spirit will give you what you need. Do we believe this stuff? The other side of the two-edged sword is that all that we say and do on Christ's behalf had better be done in humble, prayerful, intentional dependence on Him. Because he's the one who makes it happen. If we're looking to ourselves, we're going to mess it all up. Now, in chapter 1, verse 23 to 2, 4, 
I know I'm, I'm running a little late here, so please bear with me. In 123-24, Paul finally explains why he changed his original plan to come again to Corinth. Why there was a delay. And why that change was not a failure of his godly reliability, but was instead a demonstration of his godly reliability. I'm going to read those verses again, and as I do... this. 123 to 24, as I do, listen for Paul's heart for these saints. He says, I call God as witness to my soul. By the way, if you're going to make an oath, that's the only one that matters. Don't swear by on your mother's grave or cross your heart and hope to die. The only one who matters is the God who, who witnesses and and to whom we are accountable in all, every word that comes out of our mouths. I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we are workers for you, with you and for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. So to spare you, that's the first reason. And he says, but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow who then makes me glad but the one whom I have made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have in abundance for you. See, Paul knew that if he showed up in Corinth again, uh, Corinth again right after sending that letter of harsh rebuke, before they had had time to process it, before, before giving the Holy Spirit time to work in their hearts, it would just have been another very painful visit for both sides, both parties. And I should add, it would not have given them time to repent corporately as a church to deal with this together as a community of saints and recognize these guys are not telling us the truth. Paul is. Now, let me ask this. Did Paul's change of plan about when he would come again to Corinth show him to be trustworthy or untrustworthy? Let's change the question just a little bit. Which of these two would make you trust another person to consistently and reliably act in a manner that blesses you rather than harms you? Which of these two? A, that he always, without fail, does what he said that he would do at first. Or B, that he always, without fail, does what is loving as God measures love, even if he has to change his plans to do it? A or B? Right. <laughs> Paul's delay was not due to some vacillation, not some failure of reliability on his part. Quite the opposite. His change of plan was, was motiv motivated by the, the steadfast, covenant-keeping love of God. At work through Paul, as God's chosen vessel to bless those whom God had redeemed through his, his ministry to be God's own people. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul said to these same saints, 
be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Beloved, are we imitators of Paul as Paul was of Christ? Can our brothers and sisters in Christ bank on the fact that godly love for them will govern our course of action toward them? Do we have the kind of prayerful, humble, intentional dependence on God that would justify that kind of confidence in our motives? In his commentary on this morning's passage, George Guthrie says this, Today, we need men and women who are people of resolute integrity who can appeal to their God, His Gospel, and their own patterns of life in the same breath with quiet confidence. We need ministers who can live transparently in glass houses without the constant fear of a rain of shards shattering the illusion of, of a godly character. Only lives lived by the principles of God, grounded in the Gospel of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and under the watchful love of God, only such lives can accomplish this. Under the New Covenant, we are all ministers, right? We are all, by the way, the word minister, it's the same word that's translated servant. We're all ministers representing Christ in the service that we render on His behalf. So Paul's exhortation that, is, that fills this passage, is it, it applies to all of us. Do you believe that God, that God can use you to do His holy and righteous work in this world? That's what He intends to do. That's what He gave His Spirit to you to accomplish. I'm going to close by reading uh, chapter 1, verse 20 just one more time. For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. And I'm just going to interrupt right there and say, God promised that, and we're going to see this later in the book, that through jars of clay like you and me, He will display to this world the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do we believe that? And he says, therefore also through Him, through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Loving Father, You have graciously caused the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit to dwell in person in the heart of everyone who trusts in Jesus. Humble us, dear Father, to be so constantly and prayerfully and deliberately dependent on the Spirit's work in us and through us that our love for the saints and our yes to the saints will be as reliable as yours. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.